and welcome to Rewildology, the nature podcast that explores the human side of conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. The Wildest Hits series continues. This episode made quite a splash when it was released last September. First, who doesn't love penguins and seals? And I'm sure just about all of us listening regularly daydream about visiting Antarctica one day. Michelle's creative spin on studying Antarctic wildlife is just so cool. And it makes me curious to see what further discoveries she will make as tech advances. All right, everyone, please enjoy the third volume of Rewildology's Wildest Hits. Situated under the Antarctic Circle and the vast Southern Ocean, Antarctica is the windiest, coldest, and driest continent in the world. Categorized as a polar desert, Antarctica receives less than six inches of precipitation per year, and temperatures can reach as low as negative 89.2 degrees Celsius or 128.6 degrees Fahrenheit. With these statistics in mind, I'm sure you're wondering, how do we study wildlife that lives in some of the harshest conditions on the planet? How do we ensure that we obtain the proper amount of knowledge about emperor penguins, Adelie penguins, and Weddell seals so that we can make informed conservation decisions? By using satellite imagery. Wait, we can study Antarctica's wildlife from space? How? That, dear listener, is the topic of today's discussion with the lead scientist who figured it out. In this episode, I am sitting down with Michelle LaRue, PhD, spatial ecologist and associate professor of Antarctic marine science at the University of Canterbury. Michelle cut her teeth in wildlife research, analyzing bat guano to understand ori bat feeding habits, and then leaped at the opportunity to study cougar dispersal viability in the Midwestern United States during her master's. Never one to miss an opportunity, Michelle became a GIS lead for the Polar Geospatial Center and realized while mapping Antarctica that the tiny black dots on the ice in the satellite images were penguins. This discovery eventually led to her PhD in a lifelong pursuit of using satellite imagery to study emperor penguins, Adelie penguins, and Weddell seal colonies. Michelle and I discuss what inspired her to pursue a career in wildlife conservation as a young girl and then spend a good amount of time exploring possible cougar habitat in the Midwestern United States. We then head south and chat about penguins and seals, the power of high-resolution satellite imagery for monitoring inaccessible Antarctic wildlife colonies, how conservation decisions are made in Antarctica, the top threats penguins and seals are facing in the Southern Ocean, and what we all can do to help conserve our seventh continent. Really quickly before we dive in, I have a tiny favor to ask of you. We are currently putting together a massive grant proposal to send to a well-known organization to hopefully fund an exciting podcast series in the field. To help the show look as awesome as possible to the grant committee, could you please take a moment and leave up to a five-star review rating on your favorite podcast app? You don't have to leave a review, but if you feel up to it, I'm sure the committee would love to read why you enjoy the show. All right, everyone, please enjoy this conversation with Michelle. 
Well, hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for calling in all the way from the polar side. Well, almost literally opposite end of the world to talk about these really cool species and also getting some different aspects of it that I can't wait to talk to you about. But first, let's go back to little Michelle. Let's do a little bit reflection and journey journeying down your time here. When you look back on your childhood, do you remember the moment that you wanted to work in wildlife sciences? Mm, I don't know if there was a particular moment, rather a like an entire childhood of moments first <laughs> of, <laughs> that I was just always like, I always loved animals. I genuinely don't remember a time in my life where I wasn't totally just in love with animals. The minute I was born, we had a dog. Um, and then when I was maybe, I don't know, eight or so, we moved out to kind of like a little hobby farm. So had all kinds of like goats and sheep and I had horses and dogs and cats and all kinds of animals. And so I was just, was always around animals, felt very comfortable with animals and was always just was really interested in them. Um, so it's probably not surprising to anyone who knew me when I was a kid that I ended up studying them for a living that makes sense mine's the exact same way no one's mm -hmm. surprised no one's surprised that I do what I do they don't understand it at all but yeah. they're like clearly you love it and you're in wildlife and so good <laughs> yeah exactly I get a lot of the like why are you doing this in Antarctica I get a lot of that like it's really cold there why on earth would you want to go but we get the whole penguin and seal thing that totally makes sense <laughs> yes yes but before we get to penguin and seals your career actually started with predators. So, and I, this group of animals is really close to my heart. So why, what originally drew you to cougars and, and any of your other work that you might want to explain a little bit more first? Cause I feel like it'll really set up the, the grounds for what you're doing now, but, but why, like, how did they enter your life? Yeah. So that's a fantastic question. And I've, I've reflected on this cause I, I get this question a lot, like, okay, hang on. Like, Mountain lions and penguins don't, not the same <laughs> all in any way. Like, how did that happen? Um, and I would say, I think that the way for me to best describe that is I'm just really opportunistic. I kind of just take, I will jump at a chance to <clears throat> do something cool, kind of no matter what it is, um, as long as there's, you know, something outside and the environment and ideally an animal involved. And so, yeah, I was, I was doing research as an undergrad at Minnesota State University, Mankato, and I was doing work on like, bats. I was looking through bat guano. So like trying to figure out what they're eating. Um, I did some work on white-tailed deer. So again, both of those kind of just like, Hey, this is an opportunity. You want to give it a shot? And I'm like, sure, sounds good. And so then the same thing happened when I graduated from my undergraduate degree, I was working, working for a guy at the, at the DNR whose colleague at Southern Illinois university Carbondale, um, had an open project and he said he was happy to, you know, recommend me for the project. And I was like, Ooh, that sounds great. What is it? He's like, it's on mountain lines. And I'm like, Oh my God, that sounds amazing. Like, mountain lions sound so cool. So I did not, I wouldn't say that I necessarily had a, like, I have to study mountain lions or I have to study bears. I loved wolves when I was a kid, but I feel like that was also a kind of a morbid fascination because they also really scared me, which is oh. kind of interesting psychologically. <laughs> feel like but we'll go past that anyway so that's how I got involved with mountain lions was it was really that that network of people saying like hey there's a you know a student who I think has you know hopefully some sort of promise or or would do a good job on your project and I'm happy to recommend her and so that's how I got involved oh that's so cool and I can't leave this topic yet because I love them so much so what exactly did you end up studying like what is the kind of work that you did and then you and that you found and what region were you in that sort of like northern U.S. territories that where you stayed or 
or I guess from a bigger picture, what is it that you looked at? What are the questions that you were really looking to answer? So the, the question that I got as a master's student, I think was really, really fortunate because it was super interesting. And the question was, why are we seeing so many mountain lions outside of their established territories in Western North America? So I was in Minnesota at the time that I got the offer to, to do this master's program. And then the program itself was in Southern Illinois. So again, not in anywhere where sh mountain lions should be, but for the previous, like at that time, it would have been probably 10 to 15 years or so, there were more and more mountain lions kind of showing up in places like Iowa, Illinois, Minnesota, Nebraska, where they quote unquote shouldn't be, right? Like right. mountain lions aren't supposed to be, like, why are they here? And so then this hypothesis came to be, it's like, okay, well, maybe they're, you know, reestablishing or kind of recolonizing, expanding their range into areas where they used to be. Because even though mountain lions hadn't been, had, there hadn't been populations of mountain lions east of the Mississippi for a really long time, with the exception of the Florida panther, of course, they had been there. Like prior to 1900, you know, mountain lions used to span from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean and all the way from Northern British Columbia down to Southern Chile. So like they were everywhere and just, it just happened to be at this time and still to this time they, they weren't. And so then this, this question came is like, why are we seeing all of these animals? Perhaps they're reestablishing their ranges. If they do continue to do that, if that hypothesis is correct, supported, where are they likely to go? Like, so where is their good habitat? And then how are they likely to get there? So kind of a long winded answer to say the question I was looking at for a master's program was really along the lines of like, all right, if we're going to see mountain lions more in the future, where are they going to establish habitat and how are they going to get there? Oh my gosh, let's keep going down this. So this is so cool. I was reading that Heart of a Lion book. I haven't finished it yet because there are three guests coming up on the show that are all authors. And so that's taken a lot of my reading capacity. So I haven't finished that book yet, but that is very similar to the narrative. It's following one of these Black Hills cougars that was migrating east and the whole story behind all of that. And it sounds very in line with what you were looking at. And maybe this might've been around the exact same time. So I guess I did not anticipate to uh, stay on this topic so long, but I'm so curious. Where were the source populations coming from? Like where were these cougars coming from and then to, and did you find good habitat? Are they starting to establish in the east? Like, please give me hope if there is yeah. any hope. It was a really interesting project. So not only was it, you know, some mountain lions are charismatic for multiple reasons. Um, you know, they're scary and, um, you know, they're, they're, are defined and hard to see in the wild, but also like the question was really interesting, right? Like what, okay, so what's gonna happen? So, so what we found is that the mountain lions that we were seeing in places in the Midwest, so we kind of, my study area, I guess, study region was what we called the Midwest. So like Minnesota and Wisconsin down to like, you know, Texas, Louisiana. So that kind of like mid, mid section of the United States. And so what we found is that these animals are dispersing. So they're largely sub-adult males, which are the, the group uh, within mountain lion populations that are likely to disperse away from where they're born. And so these animals are coming from places like the Black Hills. Um, sometimes they're coming from North Dakota, sometimes they're coming from Colorado, but largely speaking, they're coming from the Black Hills in South Dakota. And so it's these, you know, kind of young kids, young males that are being kicked out of their natal habitats and they have to go somewhere. And the idea was that a lot of the Western habitat was basically full. There's no more room at the end. These guys got to go somewhere. And so the only place that they kind of could go and strike out on their own 
was to go into the Midwest, which hadn't seen mountain lions, like I said, for, for almost a century, probably more than a century. And so they're having to find, you know, the waterways and, you know, kind of little pieces of habitat to get where, who knows where. It's not like they know where they're going, right? They don't right. know that there's good habitat in Arkansas and parts of Oklahoma and Missouri and, you know, northern parts of Minnesota. They don't know that. They're just, you know, kind of striking it on, out on their own. And so that's what we're starting to find or that what we did find. So for my master's program, um, I discovered there is only about 8% of suitable habitat in the Midwest to sustain mountain lion populations. And we also suggested that the likely locations where these animals would be coming from would actually be Texas um, and then making hmm. their ways up to Arkansas. But that was just my master's degree. Um, and because I loved working on this project and this idea, I'm still doing some work on that. And so we did all kinds of other things like we did some spatial modeling and some population viability analysis. Um, and the idea with those projects suggests that mountain lions are likely to reestablish populations in places like Arkansas and Missouri by the year 2040. So we'll see if that modeling is correct. Wow. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I might be, I might be going down too deep from, were you able to look at like a, like a political standpoint? Was this strictly like just the biology of these cats? Like if they get there and we let them live here, then they could potentially thrive in this area. Do you foresee that happening? Like, do you think that we'll get out of the way and let them or from your, I mean, you, I mean, you're still doing this work. Like, what do you think is going to happen if you could predict quote unquote? Yeah. So I think the, the thing I always keep in mind about wildlife management is wildlife management is people management, right? It's not like the animals yes. are going to do what they do, but we, <laughs> we are the ones who decide what, you know, we make up all kinds right. of laws and the laws are going to change depending on which state you're in, et cetera. So I think that, so to answer the question about like how we modeled it, we did model based on if the laws as they stand now, which is they're, they're largely either protected or, or you can't kill them in most states in the Midwest, that may have changed now slightly. Like I know Nebraska has a hunting season thing. So it's changing slightly in places where there are populations, but largely speaking, they're, they're mostly protected in many, pla many states in the Midwest. And so we modeled that suggesting like, all right, if that stays the same as it is, and if hunting in the Western population, so kind of those source populations stays as is, here's what we think is going to happen. And so that's what the, those models are based on. As far as what I think is going to happen, I genuinely, I don't know enough about each of the states to know what like the political mm. will and like what people are, are thinking and feeling is. But my personal view is that it's, I think it would be best if the states allowed the populations, if they're going to, re, to, to reform and to reestablish, um, in my view, it's best to let that happen and then, and then make laws and rather than trying to reintroduce. And the reason I say that is because reestablishing or reintroducing a large predator into an area where people are not used to it, I just feel like that, I'm not an expert in that particular area, but that would seem to me to be you know, rife with all kinds of problems. Whereas if they come on their own, it, quote unquote on their own, right? Like we don't do, do anything to, you know, preclude them from coming. It would seem to me that that might be slightly more allowable, I guess. So I honestly, I don't have an eloquent answer to that question, but it would be really exciting, I think, for, you know, the environment to have these large predators back in places where they, you know, used to be and, in, in, you know, in my view, probably should be. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's totally fine. It's just like, what is your, what is your thoughts? What are your opinions? 
Because that argument that you just gave about reintroductions is one of them that I hear constantly, you know, Colorado, I'm very entrenched in that, in the conservation scene in Colorado. And that's, that's one of the big concerns that a lot of the biologists that I've heard and which, which is valid. I mean, I totally understand. They're like, see what's happened with all the Northern states, with the wolves, with the reintroductions. So many people hate them, like yada, yada. And so I, I understand both. Yeah, I totally understand both. Luckily, I feel that cougars have their, just their secret ways on their side, you know, like they're, they're sneaky things. You know how long I've been trying to see one of these freaking cats and like, I'm a biologist and I track animals. I still don't have seen (laughs) one of these mofos in my life. And I've been trying, I've been trying so hard. So I think that's another thing that because all this fear comes around. And again, yes, there is some conflict with, with lions. Like we cannot forget that as biologists and, and as predator advocates, like we, that is a reality of it. But man, at the same time, like just let them come and we'll figure it out. It's okay. But I, I know I can only say that as someone who's not, I'm not the one that's going to be dealing with the conflict necessarily. So um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I like that, you know, they're a top predator. And so they, they keep a check on the system. That's really important, right? Like, so for me right. as an ecologist, I think they have, they have a really important role to play, um, particularly in places that have been devoid of that kind of a large predator. They're a, they're a stock and ambush predator, right? There aren't really any other stock and ambush predators that are that big in many places in the Midwest and East, right? And so, I mean, there's been studies done, that Dr. Sophie Gilbert did one a few years ago, looking at what the economic and I think even disease influences would be if there were mountain lions in the east like there would be far Mm -hmm. fewer air collisions with cars Um, Lyme disease could potentially be kept in check so there's a really there's really good reasons to want them in these places the concern that I would have of course would would be more for the animals welfare like I I kind of wonder like if we did you know physically take them from from certain places and put them in places where they haven't been I, I don't know what would end up happening. That said, um, you know, there was a genetic rescue of, of the Florida panther population yes. in the 1990s, right? They took them from Texas and, and um, moved some animals over to Florida. Um, and that's been largely seen as a, as a success to my knowledge. So these things can happen, I think. And I think it's probably more along the lines of like, who's in the local area who would be willing to accommodate this kind of thing. And maybe that maybe that's possible. I mean, maybe people as an example in Northern Minnesota would be happy about that. I'm not sure. If that could happen, I think that would be great. But from all of the feedback I get and kind of emails and things I get about, I, I get a lot of people are not super happy necessarily about having mountain lions in their backyard all of a sudden. So who knows? Yeah, fear of the unknown. It's it's definitely a real thing. And I was just on the phone with my landlord speaking of because you almost always hear bad things. So have this cabin back in Grand Lake up in Colorado and Unfortunately, there, so Grand County itself is mostly federal lands. And so there is a pretty strong mountain lion population there. And unfortunately, there was this mama cat that trained her almost adult cubs how to hunt pets. And they were just telling me all of this. I mean, they were being seen in the daylight and then the the mother and the cub has already been euthanized. And it's just a matter of time before they get the other cub. And so that's a whole entire family. And, and then that's the only story I hear. I'm like, I was there every single day trying to find a freaking cat. And this is the only story I hear is this one really sad, tragic one. 
And so, yeah, it's just, it's just changing the narrative and helping people be educated around, like, if you're going to live in mountain lion habitat, this is how you properly do it. And yes, there is going to be some conflict, especially as we keep moving into these wild places. Like I, I lived up there. It was a very wild place, beautiful place, right outside yeah. of Rocky Mountain National Park. It was a dream, dream of mine to live up there. So yeah, so we'll see what happens. I highly recommend everybody. Have you read Heart of a Lion? Have you read that? I haven't read it yet. No, I know all about oh it, my but gosh. I haven't read it yet. I know. Yes, I know. it is literally yeah. your master's in like, a book <laughs> and a narrative mm. it is the exa exactly what you just said in like a story form so and it's and following the story of this one lion that made it all the way all the way east and then everything that happened before that talking about the black hills and the source population and oh uh, yeah yeah so highly recommend that book and then of course reading all your scientific papers too to go with it so you can have both both narratives but okay so i will get off of my cougar soapbox here so when and how did <laughs> antarctica enter your life Oh gosh, how did that happen? Um, how did that so again, happen? <laughs> how did, let me think. Yeah, so thinking about, again, like keeping in mind, I just like, oh, I'll take, I'll take opportunities as they come, as long as they, you know, kind of sound fun and everything. So when I got done with my master's degree, I, I moved out to West Virginia. My, my boyfriend then, now husband, was at West Virginia University. And I was like, all right, well, I should go, I should go, you know, do something new and fun. So I moved out there um, and got a job doing work for a forest inventory company. Oh. I have, I don't know anything about forests other than mountain lions live in them, right? <laughs> but what that did though, is that got me a lot of extra field experience. So I got a lot of, of experience working on a field team and doing a lot of GIS. So like mapping and remote sensing work. And as it turns out, that's the kind of, that combination of experiences is actually what got me the job at the University of Minnesota working for and with U.S. Antarctic program. So I don't know, I was in West Virginia for maybe a few months, basically, and then started looking for other, other opportunities um, and saw this posting for an Antarctic cartographer. And I was like, well, I don't know anything about Antarctica, and I know just enough about how to make maps. I'll give it a go. And they hired me to, like, I was shocked, actually, because um, I'm a wildlife ecologist. I'm definitely not a cartographer. And if you look at my early maps, like you can, would agree, like they're terrible, but <laughs> we had labels and the North arrow was in the right spot and I had scale bars. And so like it did the job, right? But that's how I got a job doing work in Antarctica. It was really, I wouldn't say on accident, but it was, again, I, I didn't really like set out to, to do work in Antarctica. I just kind of leapt at a chance to do something new and fun and it worked out. Mm, okay. 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 So I think that the main theme of today is starting to bring itself up. And this is mapping, you know, your mapping work. So how did this apply to what you end up continuing on doing? And maybe if you want to even maybe teach us a little bit about the species that you work with a lot too. So how, maybe just let's take this big picture. What exactly do you do? And how did all of this come together maybe at this point in your life? Oh God. So I ask my, I'm like, what do I do for a living? I don't even know. I, like, what? I know. Like, what is it that I do? I answer emails. That's what I do. That's, that's the actual answer. What have I been trained to do? That's a different question. So what I've been trained to do is, you know, as a wildlife ecologist, spatial ecologist, what I've been trained to do is to kind of figure out where animals are, how many there are and why they live in certain places over others and kind of just real generally that's that's what I do but along those lines the other thing that I do and and learn to do really well is to count them from space so that's so like looking at high resolution si satellite imagery that's been kind of my jam over the past 
15 years or so is like trying to figure out how we can use new technology, high resolution satellite imagery to understand where wet-nail seals live, where emperor penguins live, Adelie penguins, crab-eater seals, um, and then even in the Arctic looking for like muskox and polar bears. So that's really the, the work that I've been trying to kind of figure out as I, as I go along. So it's looking at, you know, habitat and spatial distributions of animals. So that's essentially what I do is I try to figure out like <clears throat> for the past, I don't know, 10 years or so, I would say I've been trying to figure out how to use the, that technology to, to understand what we're seeing, right? Because you can't just take an image and then count everything you see and then say that's how many there are. That's, it's far more complicated than that. And so, so with all these different species, it's been a matter of like methodically figuring out what we can say with, with the imagery and, and what that then translates to as far as population trends, population estimates, um, habitat, you know, what's going to happen in the future, that kind of a thing. So yeah, it's been a lot of uh, kind of trial and error, I would say, over the past 10 to 15 years or so. Yeah, and that's so cool because me not not really knowing about this type of research before I sat down with you, which is so cool. I would feel like this would give you access to areas that we probably normally couldn't survey, right? I would imagine. That is the most, like that was the most exciting part of the realization that we could see these animals from a satellite image because it's like, oh my God, this completely changes everything because doing work in Antarctica, most of the animals that are studied at all, let alone like long-term studies are nearby research stations, right? So it's this like proximity to be able to physically mm. get to them, right? Well, Antarctica is huge, right? And the coastline <laughs> is thousands and thousands of miles long. And there's a lot of places where these animals could be. Um, and so there's a lot we're missing out on. And so if we can see and have this remote view, that completely changes everything. And so that was really probably one of the more exciting things for me as a scientist was having that realization of going like, oh my gosh, I have a background in wildlife ecology, like a passion for conservation. And I have these skills in, you know, remote sensing interpretation and GIS and seeing, you know, the little black dots on the white ice and realizing those are what else seals. It's like, oh, this changes everything. I'm like, oh my God, we can actually see the coastline. We can see these places that we can't physically get to and have for the first time, the ability to know how many there are. And that's just, I mean, we just never had the, uh, the ability to do that. So it's really been really exciting. Do I chance remember like that specific moment when that happened or, or was that too finite of a moment? Like, do you know, yes, I definitely remember the moment that I realized I was looking at seals from space. It was really exciting because it was, I was doing something else entirely, but I was looking at the high resolution imagery and I was looking at a place called Erebus Bay, which is really close to McMurdo Station, the largest Antarctic research base in Antarctica, and where the U.S. does their most of their research. And I was looking at the Erebus Glacier Tongue, which is this glacier that kind of juts out into the sea ice. And at the very end of the Glacier Tongue, I saw these little black dots. And I looked at that and I was like, that doesn't look like, because like sometimes uh, sea ice, when it starts to melt, it'll do that. It looks kind of mm -hmm. dirty, kind of. But it definitely wasn't that. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that those are what else seals. And so I took a screenshot and I sent it to a couple of my colleagues and they said, yep, that's exactly what you're looking at. And then the rest is ancient history. Oh, so and cool. Say, yeah, it was around, great. Around what, just so we can help put the timeline together here, around what year was this? And this started to launch, like what you started to do next? So that was in 2009, I think. And what was really interesting, so I realized pretty quickly that's what that was. And I talked to my boss and I was like, this is really exciting. Can I do a proof of concept 
this would have been like kind of not exactly outside my job parameters, but Chant will say like adjacent to my my job parameters. And he's like, yeah, you should definitely go for it. And so I reached out to the people who were doing work on the ground and I said, I've got this idea. Can we do a proof of concept, you know, just to say like, I'm going to get a couple of images and count all the seals I see. And you tell me how many are actually there, which is the benefit of having mm. these long-term projects, right? Is it that are on the ground because they could actually say, you know, in November of 2004, yeah, there actually were 130 there and you counted, you know, 75 or something, right? So we had that ability to make those comparisons, which is really exciting. Um, and so that's what we did. And I remember the first time starting out, I did all the counting. So I looked at these images and literally went like one, two, three, four, counted all the seals that I could see. And then I was starting to compare the total number of animals that the, the group on the ground was counting. And it wasn't even close. Like I was way off. And uh, so I was like, oh, that's, that's disappointing. Like this isn't working. Like sometimes they were close, sometimes they weren't. But I had this and I still kind of have this, I kind of, it's kind of like boo-woo a little bit. Like I don't really have a, a scientific reason or like a explanation for this, but I was just, I remember just staring at, at the numbers and I'm like, why isn't this working? And then I realized as I was staring at the numbers in the spreadsheet, I was like, there's adults, adult females, adult males, and pups. I'm like, what if I just start looking at the adults? And then I got a little bit closer. And then I started looking at just the adult females and then it was like almost spot on. And so that's when we realized pretty quickly that we were counting all of the adult females and nobody else. So we weren't able to see the pups on the high resolution images. They're too little. And largely speaking, most of the males were under the water. And so that was that kind of first realization of like, okay, this is who we're counting. We're not counting everybody. We're specifically counting the adult females. And so then that made sense. And then we went on from there. Oh my gosh, this is so freaking cool. It was ridiculous. Like, like just like... Like, holy crap, like to be able, just that technology has gone so far that we are able to study species that are living in some of the most harsh habitat in the world that is almost impossible, some impossible to access by humans. And we're still able to ask and study scientific questions about them. Whoa, like I'm just excited talking to you and I didn't even make the discovery. <laughs> it was honestly, it was one of those like, it's kind of ironic that in in some ways doing work on these animals in Antarctica is easier than it was before. Like not everything, obviously we can't, there's a lot of, well, there's probably more limitations than there are abilities, but like the ability to know how many there are and the fact that they're there, like that's actually easier now, even though Antarctica is the highest, driest, windiest, coldest place on the continent or on the, on the planet. And you can't physically fly to most of these places. We can still, as long as there's not a cloud in the way, we can still get a really nice high resolution image and see whether or not they're there. And that's incredible. And it was, yeah, it was a really, it was a really fun and it continues to be really fun. Do you have to access like special satellites for that? Or can someone go on like Google Earth right now and see if they can find a seal? You're, you can do it on Google Earth. It's commercially, <laughs> yeah, it's commercially available imagery. Yep. And so at the time, we started working with the company Digital Globe, which has now been purchased by Maxar Technologies, and I think they just got purchased again as well. Don't quote me on that, though. I could be wrong. Anyway, so yeah, it was it's commercially available, and because we had a, a federal grant, we were federally funded by the National Science Foundation, we were able to take advantage of a program that allowed us access to these images for free, basically, or at no extra cost to our to our grant. And so that's how we were able to get a lot of these, get a lot of these images to kind of do that, that first proof of concept and then kind of come up with strategies and ways to move forward from there. 
And I guess, okay, so maybe before I was just like, was 10 questions ahead. Let's go take it back a step. So then what is, after you had to prove a concept, then what is the question then that you started to look into? And was it just like going to different regions around Antarctica, looking for different species? And, and also too, if you might be able to tell us why these specific species that you looked at, was it, they were just the easiest to see or what are the conservation questions around them? So yeah, maybe what's next and, and why did you choose what happened next? So the next, so the, the first, well, I guess the second question is easy to answer is because we could see them. So I was like, all right, well, we can see them. We might as well go down this path. Like, let's just do that. <laughs> that's, that's kind of facetious. It's not exactly just that, but it was, it was an, <laughs> like, okay, we can see them. This is really cool. But also there happens to be a really important conservation question, which is are our fisheries or commercial fisheries potentially having an impact on wet else seals. So wet else seals eat Chilean sea bass, which is, is caught as Antarctic toothfish and sold as Chilean sea bass at high-end restaurants around the world. And so, you know, Chilean sea bass is an important prey item for these guys. And so that became kind of, or in, in re, continues to be this question is, okay, are, are, how are the seal populations doing? Mm -hmm. A lot of conservation biology, as, as you know, we, we tend to do, or tend to, can think about some animals as indicator species, right? So like, you know, how their populations are doing is, are supposed to indicate how the environment around them is doing. And so, you know, can what else seals be an indicator for the toothfish population or just, you know, kind of overall ocean health? And so those were some of the questions from a conservation perspective, but from a, a real, real basic standpoint of population ecology is like, where are all of these animals? That's just, where are they? And how many are there? So that became the, the next thing on my mind was to say, okay, let's get a first ever population estimate if we can. And that took a really long time. We started out, so we figured out we could see them in 2009, and we just got the first population estimate published in 2021. So it took quite some time to figure out how to do that. Wow. And I guess, why? Why? Did, why? <laughs> why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I gave a presentation one time, uh, it wasn't that long ago, and somebody asked me, they're like, well, why did it take so long? And I was like, hey, it's <laughs> take a long time. <laughs> what do you mean how long did it take? Um, <laughs> But really, so the reason it took such a long time is so we, we, you know, had this idea like, okay, this is cool. And then we tried a couple of different like computer algorithms and, you know, trying to say like, okay, can we automatically detect them from space? And the answer was yes, but it took longer to actually train the computer than it would for me to just like count it myself. Just um, so yeah, to just do it. And so for me, it's like, all right, well, that's not an increase in efficiency at all. And also it's still my opinion that the human brain is is better at this than computers are still. And I hope I'm wrong about that someday. Maybe I'm wrong about that now, but to my, my knowledge, the human brain is still better at this. So it, it kind of got to this like, oh man, there's so much space available for these animals to be. And these algorithms aren't, aren't really doing the trick. I, somebody has to count it. I can't do it myself. And even if I wanted to, to you know, hire like 10 students to help me, like it would just, it's, it was just too big of a prospect to do. And so with that kind of I got set aside for a few years until I told that story exactly to a colleague of mine at the Digital Globe Foundation. And he put me in touch with Luke Barrington, who had founded a group called Tomnod. And that was the game changer, was this on online platform that allowed anyone in the world to like log in, look at these images and help us specifically count these animals. And that's when everything changed. Wow. Wow. So you were able, even able to like employ or, or 
call to arms like citizen scientists essentially to help yeah. with this as well yes exactly so and the cool. thing that was so beautiful about it is they they had said had had and have continued to have it's, it's changed forms now but like at the time when we were working with tom nod the platform was very simple simple to navigate and the algorithm in the background was not simple at all it was it was quite complex but the idea was was very simple do you see the animals or not and that's how we started out like just vote yes or no and the beauty of it was the idea that there's some sort of wisdom of the crowd if more people are saying yes there's a seal here it's more likely that there's going to be a seal here versus not and, and vice versa so it was a really simple prospect and that really allowed us to narrow down the amount of space on the ice where the animals are likely to be and then we went back to those places where there actually were animals and then we decided to count them and there's no way we could have done that without Luke's team and Tom Nod and without the literally hundreds of thousands of people who helped us out, there's no way this could have been done without them. Oh, that's incredible. It was, that's incredible. It, was really, it was really impressive. And it was also really inspiring to see that many people care. I mean, and be excited and interested in what we were doing. Wow. So then let's go, let's go to 2021, which now is pretty crazy. That, that was two years ago. Yep. So this paper finally came out, which one, cool holy crap like we have these actual population estimates from satellite strictly from satellite so what did you all find did you find different trends or was it just straight like this is data um were there any applications of it but yeah maybe just teach us like what did you actually discover at the not the end of this this never stops but at that point what did you all find so we found two things that I thought personally were pretty interesting. One is that there are 202,000 female Weddell seals in the world. That was the first thing. And then the second thing that I thought was really interesting is we also looked at what describes their habitat. So like, are there certain things in common why these animals choose where to be versus not? And among lots of kind of sea ice factors and, you know, being close to certain depths of the water, it turns out that across multiple regions and across the entirety of Antarctica, Weddell seals prefer to be nearby emperor penguins as long as the nearby emperor penguin colony isn't too big. And they don't like to be nearby Adelie penguins at all, which is really <laughs> interesting. Yeah, they don't like to be nearby them, which I think is, is kind of funny because like when you put an emperor penguin, or excuse me, um, Adelie penguin and a Weddell seal next to each other, like they are not even remotely close to the same size. Like, I mean, Weddell seals are several times larger than and a daily penguin, but they don't like to be nearby them, which I thought was pretty funny and interesting. So what that told us is that there are a lot fewer Weddell seals than we were expecting. And it also gave us some insights into looking at the other animals around the Antarctic continent to see like, okay, these animals are not operating in isolation, right? They have to deal with their, you know, interspecific competition so you know competing amongst each other and also interspecific competition so competing amongst other species as well and so we brought up this idea that possibly there's something happening there like are they are they staying away from each other are they coexisting in some way are they niche partitioning like what's what's happening here and i remember the first time that i gave that presentation um, at a conference people i had multiple people come up to me and they're like that's not right there's no way that Adelie penguins are are precluding what else seals. And I was like, okay, well, you're probably right, but that's what our data say. And we've done a lot of checking and we have replicated that at multiple spatial scales. So the first time that I gave that presentation was about just the Ross Sea. So just like one region in the Southern Ocean. But then we did it again for this paper in 2021. And we looked at that 
you know, as a potential descriptor as to why seals live in certain spots. And it came up again <laughs> as another thing. So it seems that there may be something going on there that warrants further attention. And so that's what I'm working on now. Oh, so cool. Maybe they just don't like them. Maybe they smell weird or they're really they do loud. Smell. Who I mean, knows? They, really do, they, do, they do smell. Apologies to Penguin researchers. They stink. <laughs> I love them, but they smell bad. And everyone who studies Adelie penguins knows that they smell bad. But yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was really interesting. But I mean, if you think about it, like from a, a, a grander scale, there's way more Adelie penguins than there are Weddell seals, right? There's millions and millions of Adelie penguins. Um, there's only 200,000 Weddell seals. And so the question for me then is like, okay, are they, you know, are these kind of larger colonies of Adelie penguins kind of, for lack of a better term, kind of like choking out some of the, you know, Weddell seal populations that could be in, in the vicinity? Are they just taking up all the food while the Weddell seals are regaining their mass after giving birth. I mean, there's all kinds of like temporal and spatial questions that we need to take into account, but it's a fascinating new way forward for me, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, oh, gosh, another reason why I love science. You finally answer a question and then you have 10 more. Exactly. I was just going to say <laughs> way more questions than you. It's like, okay, great. But it, it keeps me in a job, right? <laughs> it keeps me busy. Now, what about the penguin side of it? Did you also have a published penguin emperor penguin or, or Odelli or anything that came from this same study yeah so along those lines we so as i've mentioned kind of a little while ago we did what we could to make sure that we were methodically figuring out how to study each of these animals right because they're all different first of all obviously um, but then also interpreting the images themselves are all very different so um, i went down the line of what else seals we did the same thing with emperor penguins Adelie penguins and came up with the first ever population estimates for all of them. So we have a first ever population estimate for emperor penguins, which came out in 2012. We followed that up with the first ever population estimate for Adelie penguins. And so then it was just the Weddell seals that took quite a bit longer. So we do have, have that kind of baseline information that we can now use to our advantage to study all three of those species, you know, in their environment, in the same environment, rather than looking at them separately. Oh, okay, cool. That makes sense. Yeah. So let's then talk about the application of this. It's like, so we have these numbers, we have real data. And maybe first, before we talk about specifically these species, I would love if you could teach us how exactly does Antarctica work? Because it's not a normal country. Like there is a, you know, a federal government, whatever country it is, they decide, you know, conservation of their wildlife and their animals. Well, that doesn't exist in Antarctica. So maybe could you start by first teaching us how exactly conservation is done on a continent that isn't owned by anybody technically? And then how do we apply what you found to that, this governmentless land, which I know that's not like completely accurate, but you get what I mean, you know? So how does it work and then how do we apply it? <laughs> It's a super interesting question, and it's it's really difficult. And there, I mean, I have colleagues whose you know their entire professions are dedicated to figuring out that exact question. So, largely speaking, the way this works is Antarctica is governed by an Antarctic treaty. So there is a an international treaty that was signed in 1959 by 12 countries saying, okay, we're setting aside the continent for peace and science. It's much more complicated than that, but for my brain, that's what I focus on: is it's peace and science. We're supposed to be, you know, using this entire continent and learning from it, which is brilliant in, in my view. To have signed that, you know, at the height of the Cold War is really impressive. So then when it comes to conservation, when I think there's there's multiple 
conservation tools in Antarctica. So I'm just going to focus on one of them, the one that that applies to the animals in the water. And that is a an agreement called CAMELAR. So I'll tell you what that acronym stands for. It's the Convention on the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources. So kind of a mouthful, but this is the convention that says, okay, again, essentially, it's far more complicated than this, but essentially, if I were to say it in a sentence, it's basically to make sure that the Southern Ocean is conserved on an ecosystem-based management idea rather than focusing on a single mm. species. So we need to make sure that the whole Southern Ocean is functioning the way it quote unquote should, and we need to be doing things within it that don't alter it in, in a way that can't be undone, basically. So we basically need to make sure that we're not screwing things up in the Southern Ocean. And that's what CAMELAR does. And so CAMELAR is comprised of the, those Antarctic Treaty nations and other nations as well, which allow for rational use in the Southern Ocean. And so that what that means is countries can put in a request or, or an intention to, to fish in the Southern Ocean. Um, now, if you're wondering what we fish for in the Southern Ocean, largely it's krill and Antarctic toothfish and a few other um, smaller species, but largely krill and toothfish are the two, kind of the two big ones. And so Camelar gets together. So all these countries get together every year and say, okay, how, how are we doing? Can we fish for this amount of krill? Can we fish for this amount of Antarctic toothfish? You know, what are we going to set those limits at? And so they do that every single year. Now, mm. the way that my work applies to that, or I hope at some point it will apply to that, is to provide information to say, okay, here's how those krill predators are doing. Here's how those toothfish predators are doing. Can you use that information to help your management and, and to help your conservation decisions? And so, again, acknowledging it's far more complicated than that, that's basically how it works is countries get together and make decisions and say, here's how much krill we can catch. Here's how much toothfish we can catch. If you do, you know, if you catch more than that, you're going to be in trouble. If you try to catch fish outside the time frames, you're going to be in trouble. Um, so there's a little bit of, there's governance, there's policy, and there's a little bit of policing. We kind of police each other. I should say the boats kind of police each other in the Southern Ocean. Mm, and were you able to present at this conference then when you so, it's really difficult to do. <clears throat> I have presented, or I should say, I've put up two different papers, one of which got through to the to the final meeting, but I don't think was ever discussed, and the other one crashed and burned. <laughs> so the way it works in New Zealand anyway is if I have an idea, I'm a scientist, and I have an idea, and I say, okay, I have some information that I think might be worthwhile for Camelar to consider. I then put it up to the country's Camelar, so New Zealand's Camelar group. Um, and then they make decisions as to whether or not this is worthwhile to bring forth to the entire group at Camelar. Um, there's a bunch of different subgroups and subcommittees and things like that. But that's kind of like the first stage is to say, okay, does New Zealand support this as a, a finding? Is it worthwhile to present to the whole group? And so that's kind of the first stage. And then if that happens, then it goes to Camelar, which is always happens in October of every year. So those, so yes and no. I've I've attempted, but it didn't get all the way out there. And then the second one just didn't didn't work at all. Wow. How does someone get on Camelar then? What's the criteria? Ooh, good question. How do you get onto the Camelar group? I don't know, actually. Curious. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I think I should know the answer to that, but I don't. Yeah, I'm not sure how that works. But it's oh, that's um, okay. You can't just be anybody. I mean, you have to you have to know what you're doing. And I will say that everyone I have ever communicated with who is involved with Camel is in 
just incredibly good at what they do. It is the the level of detail that and the nitpicking that, and I mean that in a good way, that my work has gone under through in these like general, like this, those kind of first considerations is incredible. Like it's, it's very, very good. So I, I have a lot of faith and a lot of confidence that the work that ends up getting all the way to Camelar is just like top-notch stuff. Um, so I know that the, the whole Camelar group that gets together every October is seeing the, the best of the best for sure. Oh, that's super cool. And I don't want to, I don't want to downplay it all either. Cause I have so many notes here of all of these groups that you are a part of, you know, ATCM, is that right? And my notes and SCAR, that's another SCAR, one. Yep. Yep. And, and a whole bunch of penguin stuff. So, so, and I know that the last time we chatted, we chatted, you were going to a big meeting and that's something, or, or were you going down back down to Antarctica, right? I went to you know, like there was, yeah. there was, there was, there was things that happened in between our phone calls. I would love, let's, I would love to hear more about this side. Cause yeah, yeah. First and foremost, you're a scientist, but there, there's another whole side of this that I know you do. So maybe could you teach us a little bit about that? What, what are these groups that you're a part of? And, and also too, maybe what happened at this meeting that you gave me a little, a little insight that was going to be happening. So Yeah. So I went down to Antarctica, which is the, the thing that I did uh, between our phone calls. So I went down to Antarctica with uh, Lynn Blad's National Geographic Explorer, which was an incredible trip, completely just probably one of the best trips of my life. It was wonderful. Got to see an emperor penguin, actually got to see two emperor penguins, which was really rare. Oh. Yeah. So that was really, really incredible. But yeah, to talk a little bit, I'll just give an example about SCAR. So SCAR stands for the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research. And specifically within SCAR, I'm the chief officer of the expert group on birds and marine mammals. And so what our job is, is to provide scientific information to SCAR, to the Antarctic Treaty. Um, so basically objective scientific information to, to folks who ask us for it. So that's our job. And so I would say probably the most notable thing that I've done with my colleagues most recently is providing such information about emperor penguins to, to the Antarctic Treaty. So we were approached, uh, SCAR EGBAM, so our group was approached a couple of years ago about wanting to put emperor penguins on the Antarctic Specially Protected Species list. Mm. Again, that's a, everything's an acronym. You can probably see why, because everything is like really long. It's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> everything um, in science is an acronym. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So basically, long story short, there is like, okay, we wanted, we, we're, there was a country who's interested in putting them on the species, this protected list, but you have to provide information like, okay, is it warranted? Is this, is this useful? Do, do we need this? And so then our job as, as um, members of, of EGBAM is to compile all the information that we know as experts and provide it as a working paper and an information paper. So we provided that information and then we kind of just sat back and said, okay, that's out of our hands now. We've we've done our our part. But then what's fun, at least for me, was watching how that worked on the other side then, right? So, you know, as a scientist, we provide this information and said, here you go. Um, but then it gets taken to the policymakers and decision makers and, you know, lawyers and, you know, all kinds of other countries get to look at this information and then determine based on what we've said and based on what they know does that jibe and does that make sense to have them listed as a specially protected species? Um, and so this past year in 2022, the way that worked out was the answer is no, <laughs> that, that was not enough oh. information. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, and I, I'm paraphrasing my, my view, right, 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 was right, it, right. Was it wasn't good enough to, to have them listed. 
And so the way things work, I, I don't know if this is in every single organization or, or grouping within the Antarctic, but largely speaking, things are based on consensus. And so for something to happen, you have to have everybody agree, um, mm. which, is a, which is a tall order, you know. And so not everybody agreed that emperor penguins should be listed. And so they were not. But my understanding is that we'll probably try again and we'll see what happens this year. So in your viewpoint as a scientist, is that a good thing or a bad thing? The, if there is, if it is, if you could make it black or white, if like that they didn't get listed, should they be? I mean, I know there's hmm. so much like uh, nuance when it comes to putting species on endangered lists and stuff like that. Yeah. Just what, what do you think? Man, I don't, I honestly don't know how to answer that. I'm not even trying to be like diplomatic or, yeah. <laughs> or like cagey about it. I genuinely, I don't, I, I genuinely don't know how a listing like the Antarctic specially protected species list. I'm not sure what that would do. Well, I, I know some of the things that it that would, but I'm not sure that, the decline that we're seeing in emperor penguins, and this is a this is work that's currently under review, so I, I I can't say for sure that this you know we we have done the the work, but it is not published yet. Suggests that they are in decline, and so for that reason, I think it's worthwhile to consider what we can do to mitigate any future declines. But the problem, as far as I understand it, as a scientist leading this project, is we don't know what's causing their decline, and so it's difficult to have an action where you don't really know what is going to help necessarily. So that's why I say I, I genuinely, I'm not trying to be cagey or, or overly yeah. diplomatic. I genuinely don't know what, what's going to help. I, I suppose it probably can't hurt to put them on a, on a list like this. Um, they're on the endangered species list right now. I also think that's, you know, that's fine. I think it honestly, it depends on what the mechanism for taking action to protect them and conserve them is going to be. And I genuinely don't know what those are for many of these like listings and things. So I think it's probably like, in, I, in theory, it's a good thing, but practically I don't know how that's going to work. Mm. Oh, this Which is, is an so interesting, interesting. interesting place to be because yeah. my, 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 you know, my, my PhD is in conservation biology. Right. And so I'm, and, and so I'm always interested in conserving species, populations, habitat, for future generations, you know, in, in perpetuity, right? I, I always want that to happen. So it's kind of a, a weird scenario to be even thinking like, but how is that going to work? Like, I, I just don't even know. So I, I think it's in, I, you know, in theory, it's a good thing, but I, theory and practice are not always the same. <laughs> so I'm not really sure how it's going to work, but. Yeah, it's so interesting because you're right. Because almost, well, at all the situations I know of, and I've talked to a lot of people around the world, that when we are working to conserve a species, there is a known cause of their decline. You know, chytrid and amphibians or right, um, right. Yep. Uh, overfishing in this particular river, destroying habitat for orangutans. Like there's a cause that we can directly, with human mitigation, we should be able to help them come back in some way, shape or form or, you know, their trade or, or whatever it might be. But yeah, I think this is also me too, with all the people I've talked to around the world, this might be the first time where it's like, yes, we know there's a problem, but we don't know what it is. Well, wow. yeah. And I think, I mean, the clearly climate change is a huge problem, right? And so that's, that's, 
the underlying theme for emperor penguins um, and for i would argue for any ice obligate species is that you know with less ice if they are relying on that as a habitat they're not going to have habitat anymore that's fairly straightforward and in the projections that my that my colleague dr stephanie genevria does are incredible right so she's done all mm. this work to show like okay if we lose ice this is what's going to happen to the penguins we just don't have enough data yet i would say to look back into the past over the past 10 years and say, here's what's happened. What I suspect is that there's very regional differences among what causes these animals in these populations to go up and out. And I think that's largely the case. This is my personal conjecture. Mm-hmm. I think that's largely the case with a lot of the species, actually. I think that Adelie penguins are probably pretty similar. There may be certain populations that have drivers of population change that are completely different when you look across the continent, right? So to, to paint this kind of broad brush of like, here's what's going to happen if we do this. It's more nuanced than that. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of the work that I'm trying to do now is to say, okay, can we get to some of those nuances and say, okay, reliably speaking, this, you know, region or the set of colonies is being driven by, you know, this factor while, you know, across the continent, these guys are being driven by this factor. And can we then enact conservation measures that reflect that reality rather than just saying it's a broad, here's, you know, what's going to happen. But that said, I think probably having a broader conservation measure is better than no conservation measure. Yeah, and I've never thought about this, but just to play a little bit of a devil's advocate, and it's not even really devil's advocate, would there be any downside to adding emperor penguins to this hardcore protection list before we know the answers of why? Would would some would, would there be a possible, I guess I'm just trying to go through like a, like a thinking exercise right now. Would there be any downside to being like, let's give them extra protection before we know why what's going on or not? What do you think? I think one of the unintended consequences that people are concerned about is, will it make it more difficult to study them? If there are extra hoops that have to be jumped through in order to access them, even phot- photograph them, will that make it unintentionally more difficult to even figure out what's going on. I think that's one of the the concerns, of course, from from scientists, right, who want to study them. Um, However, there, I know, if I am recalling some of the measures correctly, some of the measures are just to say, like, okay, there's going to be entire colonies or or sets of colonies that we'll never touch. They will never be visited. They will never be bothered by scientists. They will just be left alone. I personally have no problem with that. I think that's a great idea. Like, sure, why not? Like, just leave them alone, you know? There are, are you know, plenty of other locations that are closer to Antarctic research stations, you know, places that we have studied for quite some time, completely invaluable data sets come from these places, right? And so might as well keep, keep doing the work there. Um, so I think personally, I think it's, it's totally fine to, to set some places aside. I think it's fine to put in conservation measures, but I, I can understand the argument that there, it might make it more difficult to study them if there are extra measures in place saying we can and can't do certain things. Um, so I think that for me would probably be the the question, the unintended consequence that could could be. And maybe it won't be, who knows? But that's that's one of the things I think. Yeah. And that's a real concern, especially if we don't have answers. If it's like if we know that, you know, X causes Y, then we need to focus on X and then it'll be okay because then we we have a path forward. But I can see that. But it's like if I can't go study the animals that we know that are having problems because they're not protected, like that just right. 
That's a conundrum. And I think the other problem too that I I get a little concerned about is um, the idea that since we can study them remotely, then why why even bother going at all? And it's like, okay, hang on, (laughs) hang on. I said before, there's there's very very little we can do with seeing them remotely. Seeing them remotely allows us to say that they're there and how many there are, and that's basically it. Like we can Mm. learn a little bit about maybe where they're entering the ocean, and you know some kind of broader, but like what they're eating, how deep they're diving, if they have diseases, you know, if they're moving, like we can't know any of that. And so that's the kind of information that you have to have people on the ground studying them, understanding how their physiology is doing, you know, how is it changing? And by that, I mean, like, are they overheating? Are they still diving as deep as they used to? Are they, you know, still, do they have to have more effort to go find food? You can't do that remotely. And so I always try to to caution that idea about studying them remotely. It's like, okay, that can only tell us so much, like in, in very, very little on the grand scheme of things. Like if you want to know what's actually happening to the birds in the population, you have to go there and study them. That makes sense. Yeah. Because even like you said, when you were uh, giving us the great Weddell seal example, like you could only see the the female mothers and so, or right. like, well, the females. Mm-hmm. So what about chick birth rates? I, I highly doubt you can see a little fluffy penguin and and how are how are eggs doing? What is the birth rates and what's their survival rate? And when when are they exactly. actually fledging and going off? So that makes yes, that makes so much sense. And yeah, putting two like all these connections together, like I, I really don't make them until having these great conversations with you. It's like yeah, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, well, and then and the thing is that's that's really sad about if we let's hope this doesn't happen. But if the decision was made like oh no, we're just going to remotely study them. By the time we figured out that the population was declining, right, it's it's possibly too late, right? Like you would need you would mm. want to know, like, okay, are the chicks surviving better or worse than they used to? Like we we have um, some of that information. We have the adult survival rates. Um, you can't get that from remote sensing, right? You you have to go there and like physically re, you know mark and recapture some of these animals. You have to like go and count them. You have to see you know, how the chicks are doing, you have to look at their body condition, in addition to all of these other things that you can do. So yeah, it would, in my view, it would be foolish to think that we could look at them only from space, you still definitely need to have those people who dedicated their lives to understanding what's going on. And that really comes from having that on the ground, ground knowledge, knowing what the ocean looks like, knowing what their habitat looks like, how that's changed. I mean, all of that is, is a critical element. So I guess my point is, we need all hands on deck. We can't think that we can replace one way of studying them with another. We need it all. Yeah, that makes sense. And I can really say, see how this is invaluable for those special populations that you do keep tucked away for more of like, you know, population monitoring, like from year to year, how is this group, you know, th- this area, the, how are they doing and, and the, how's this population doing? But yeah, making sure we do have those eyes on the ground of, what is actually going on? How are the chicks doing? How are the adults doing? What are they catching? What are they eating? Are they changing what they're eating? And all those, yeah, you can't get those questions from a still image. No, no, absolutely you. not. Absolutely not. No, exactly. You need, like I said, you need it. You, you just need it all. And I mean, some of the people who have been, have dedicated their lives to this, I mean, the amount of, of on the ground knowledge and wisdom that they have is irreplaceable. I mean, you just, you, we can't lose that. We need to have, we need to have it all. Because it helps put things into context too. Like if I'm, you know, if I happen to see like, oh, this colony isn't here anymore, 
And then somebody, this hasn't happened, but just a hypothetical, you know, if somebody's right. like, oh yeah, well, I was, you know, down the road at, you know, this other colony, we saw way more. It's like, okay, well, so then did the one that disappeared go over there? Like it didn't disappear, mm. just, you know, relocated, right? Like, so having, having that local knowledge is really, really important. Did you see anything similar? Or I, I guess maybe if we go back, when we're talking about the groups you were in and all this stuff, were there any similar conversations with Weddell seals or anything? To put them, to especially protect them, do you mean? Yeah, especially protect them and 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 anything like that. Their actual conservation. I actually, I, I personally think that Weddell seals may be warranted to have special protections as well, just because there are even fewer of them than there are Weddell seals, or excuse me, than there are emperor penguins. So again, it kind of depends on what the justification is for protection, and you know, because I think it's also important to remember that some species exist at low numbers and are naturally rare, right? Like they just, that's yeah. something that, that's the way they exist, right? So, so just because there are fewer doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. It may just be the way they are, but the critical part is knowing that, and we don't know some of this information, right? And so that's why it's critical to like, okay, so if we are going to protect emperor penguins, widow seals, whatever, we should know how many there are, what's causing their populations to decline. And then can we come up with some sort of mechanism to prevent that in the future? And those are, the, to me, the things that need to happen in order for effective conservation to, you know, be enacted. That makes perfect sense. And then let's take this on maybe a, a bigger, let's take this up a notch to maybe just more of the continent of Antarctica itself. Since you've now been working specifically in this part of the world now for a while and have seen, I'm, I can only imagine your stories and what you've seen. And I know you've had bad days there because we all do. And I know you've had some really incredible days. So from your standpoint and your viewpoint, what do you think is the future of Antarctica from like a conservation and politically or, or what, as you sit and reflect on it as maybe even you're like, you're thinking about your career, like long-term, like I'm working in this area. Like what, what do you think might happen or is happening? I will tell you one thing that I'm worried about. I'm worried about avian influenza in, on mm. the continent. That is a, a, a pretty strong concern. Um, so the, the wildlife health, health group within our expert group on birds and marine mammals within SCAR gave a really great presentation at our last meeting and put out um, a paper and all kinds of warnings like, hey, by the way, folks, like we really need to be careful about avian influenza. I haven't been paying a whole lot of attention to what's going on in the Northern Hemisphere, but my understanding is it's just wreaking havoc everywhere on wild populations of birds, kind of all over the place. So I'm really worried about that, particularly because more and more people are going down to Antarctica. Um, and I say this as having just been a tourist in, in Antarctica. The first time I went down to Antarctica as a tourist was in 2013, and I returned again 10 years later. And the the number of ships and the number of people who are now going down is is seems to me in my anecdotal memory anyway, seems to be substantially higher. Um, and so with, with more tourists, with more activity comes greater risk of those kinds of things occurring, which is, I'm not suggesting that tourism is going to cause that. I'm not suggesting that at all. I think tourism is a good thing, but that's one of my concerns is, is increasing diseases, I guess, getting into rather pristine locations like Antarctica. So I'm a little, I'm a little concerned about that. As far as what I think is going to happen, I think, I think it seems to me the Antarctic tourism industry is doing pretty well. So I think that's going to continue. And, you know, I feel like, I, I feel like there's kind of two minds about it, right? Like one is mm -hmm. that's great because the more people see Antarctica, the more likely they are to help protect it. 
Um, and there's another mind of it going like, okay, but now there's a lot of people who are coming in and in you know, increasing risk of possibly negative things. And I say possibly because to my knowledge, there is no evidence to suggest that tourism has any negative impact on the wildlife. And from my experience, I would agree with that. I, I don't think that there is. Um, I think it's very worthwhile, uh, worthwhile to do. So yeah, I don't know, like that's also seems kind of like a diplomatic answer, I guess, but honestly, like there's, there's with, with increasing people and increasing scientists as well going down. Yeah. Things, things can change. Um, I'm also a little bit, I'm also very worried about climate change. Of course, I'm concerned about, I'm concerned about the Thwaites Glacier to be totally honest, but I'm also hopeful that we can come together as a humankind community to <laughs> somehow have some sort of impact that is positive and that can mitigate and heavens let's hope you know reverse some of the negative things that we've done to the environment yeah absolutely and i've had on now some fantastic island conservation actually they were from island conservation ironically the nonprofit. Um, scientists talking a lot about, you know, biosecurity and just the unintended consequences of humans visiting places. And so I completely understand why you have these concerns. It's it's definitely, it's a real thing. It's a real thing to be concerned about. It's not just like conspiracy theory or anything. I can see why that is something you're concerned about. Well, it is. And I will also say the other thing too, like I, I mentioned tourism, but honestly, if, if avian influenza gets to Antarctica, it is probably going to be in, from a wild bird. It's probably not going to be people. Like I, you know, I focused in my answer just now about, you know, folks, people, but it's probably going to come from a bird. And so <laughs> it's, it's a matter of us doing what we can to mitigate, you know, our, you know, potential influence on spreading it, but it's probably going to come from like an Antarctic turn or something like that. So some of these things are quote unquote natural. I don't know if that's really considered natural because, you know, if who knows, point being <laughs> that there's a lot of things kind of in flux. And I think as long as we can appreciate what we have in Antarctica and know that this is an entire continent, is an entire continent set aside for peace and science. And that is so incredible. And that there are people who are interested in going and crossing the Drake, Drake passage to get there. Yes. Um, you know, scientists who who have you know spent their lives studying it, policymakers who want to use it information to have good policy. It's it's a really impressive place to do research and to work, honestly. It really is. Oh, I gosh, I bet it's so high on my bucket list of places as we were just talking about tourism. It is one of my ultimate places that I absolutely want to go. And I would love to just switch the just just switch the script right now and flip it back to you for a second. And Again, I know I, just because I've been in this field a while myself and everyone I've sat down with, like we all have hard days and I'm sure that you've, you've also had some particularly hard days. So what keeps you going? Why do you get up every day to do the work that you're doing and answer these really important questions? It's the questions. It's honestly, it's the, mm. the questions are out there and I want, to, and I, I feel like I have a way to answer them. And so I want to, it's, almost to me it's almost like a puzzle kind of um for lack of a better term like there's a there's something out there and and these you know kind of theoretical ecological questions kind of are are out there and some of these app, you know applications are out there too and it's like okay can we can we figure out what's happening that's the the first part i'm always curious about that regardless of the, the sadness or the challenges or whatever and then secondly, can we do something about it, right? And that's where the, the conservation biology part of my, my training comes in. So those are the things that's like, all right, well, yep, the fact that the Ross Sea had very little ice in the middle of winter this year, 
that sucks. Mm. Like, all right, well, what happened? You know, so then, so that's the question. Like, all right, what, let's, that, it is what it is. What happened? Can we figure out how did, how did the birds do? How did the seals do? And then far, much farther down the line is, okay, well, is there anything we can do about that? Is there anything? And if there is, can we do something about it? And so those are the things that I just, like, I try to keep, keep in focus is like, all right, keep, keep your attention, keep your eye on the prize, right? Like what's happening and can we do something about it? Mm, yeah. Sometimes, yeah, it's have the emotion, but then use that as fuel to answer the question, like, how can we make this better the next one? If there is anything we can do, you know, but, but there is a question that we can at least ask there. Yeah. And I think, I think the other part too, is that there are people out there who want to answer that question and who are interested in making sure people know, right? Because like, you know, of all the people I ever talked to, kids are the ones who ask the best questions. They ask the mm. best questions and they're the most informed and the most curious. And the fact that they're asking those questions means it's worthwhile to do just to, to figure that out, right? Like we don't have to have a, like, what's it good for necessarily kind of a thing, right? It's, it's because these little kids want to know the answer, right? And so like that makes it worthwhile to, to try to figure out, you know? And so I kind of try to keep those things in, in mind as well. It's like, all right, well, you know, I was once a curious kid too. And I get asked the best questions from little kids. So it's like, all right, that's, that's why we need to keep doing this because I want little, little kids from all over the place to know about Antarctica and have those same types of curious questions, which is not, of course, to say that they, everyone wants, should be an Antarctic researcher or scientist or policymaker or whatever, <laughs> but it's just have that curiosity. Like yes. the fact that there, these animals exist and this place exists and because it exists, we can have these curiosities about it. So that's, I try to keep that in the front of my mind and not in the back of my mind. And for those of us that might be as far away from Antarctica as possible, or maybe not ever even seen, see the continent, because it, it is still a very expensive thing to do to go down there. And, and only a few people get have that opportunity. So how can me or anybody listening or, or how can we all help our penguins and our seals and our Antarctica continent? Hmm. I think the first thing is honestly to 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 do research and to 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 figure out what's going on, learn, um, you know, read books and things like that. That's always that's always really great. But another action that people can take that they that I feel like gets over either overlooked or not talked about enough is voting. Honestly, like if you can vote mm. you have representatives take actions for the things that you care about. So for example, you know. I don't know, having having a positive impact in Antarctica or taking a stance on the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area. That's something that um, United States elected officials helped get through uh, along with colleagues in New Zealand, right? So even though it seems really far away and it seems that, you know, some of these conversations about, you know, conservation and management take place at these like really high levels, which they do, they're almost always done by people who have been elected in some way, right? Or, or at least have been advised or are being advised by people who have been elected in some way or, or vice versa. So anyway, I think, I think voting um, is a really important thing in addition to being informed and to be, to just be curious, I think. Such great advice. And I feel like I could talk to you for all day and I have a gazillion questions, but I feel like the best thing to do would be another another episode in the future to talk a lot more as you as you continue on this research because I feel like you're going to continually ask questions and have so many incredible things to tell me and to tell all of us listening because oh I just want to I just want to have like a cocktail with you and just 
discuss things let's over a good that. drink. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. This sounds incredible. A bottle of wine, you and me. Tell me all the things. Just spew all your work. Next time so, and if, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, oh my gosh. So New Zealand is high on the list. I, I everywhere. I say that about everything, but I do travel quite a lot. So New Zealand is definitely high on the list. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It should be. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Oh my God. Yes. Oh my God. I've heard that so many times. Ugh. And so if somebody might want to get a hold of you or like read more of your work, um, maybe here, I know you have so many talks online. It, you're very active, which is incredible. How can somebody maybe go out and read more of what you do and maybe even contact you if they have more questions or anything? Yeah, so I have a website. It's just drmichellelarue.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter at drmichellelarue. Um, so those are probably the two easier ways to get a hold of me. But of course, my my email is discoverable. And so I'm happy to, <laughs> happy to answer emails as I get them. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Michelle, thank you again so much for sitting down with me. You've taught me so much. And I'm always appreciative just as a very curious person. But thanks. And I can't wait to share your episode with everybody. Beautiful. Thank you so much for having me. I truly enjoy meeting and talking with people that are going outside of the box to help us make informed conservation decisions. Who would have thought that we can use high-res satellite images to study penguins and seals in Antarctica? Mind-blowing, right? If you have a question about today's episode, please submit your question in the Rewildologist Facebook group. As always, I want to thank you for being a part of the Rewildology community. If you'd like to support the show, some zero-cost ways include subscribing to the podcast on your favorite streaming app, leaving a rating and review to boost the algorithm, which will present the podcast to more listeners, signing up for the weekly Rewildology newsletter at rewildology.com, subscribing to the YouTube channel, and following the show on your favorite social media app. If you'd like to financially support the show and help us keep these stories on the airwaves, Consider making a monetary donation at rewildology.com or purchase a piece of swag to show off your rewildology love. At least 10% of proceeds from this podcast will be donated to our conservation partners. I'd like to extend a special thanks to Heather Valley, the show's audio and video producer. If you are a fellow podcaster and would like to hire Heather to help with your show, she'd be more than happy to talk to you please reach out through one of our social channels or email us to be connected with Heather. I'd also like to thank Focusrite for powering the podcast sound. If you'd like to see the Focusrite gear we use to record the show, head on over to rewildaudio.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>